Well, good morning. If it's your first time here, my name is James, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here, and we're going to be spending some time reading the scripture together. My uh, favorite things that Jesus ever said, if there's a top two, it's that I'm with you and that I'm making everything new. Uh, So that no matter where you are in life or no matter what's going on, uh, Jesus says to that situation, whether it's going fantastic or going terrible, that he's with you, he's in it, and he's not going to abandon you, and he's always there, and he's making everything new. So the Christians can be characterized as people who uh, are able to deal with feelings of being alone, uh, and also able to have new starts. And having a new start is just part of who we are. And so the beginning of a new year is just kind of a, a, I think, a spiritually significant time for people whose God says, I am making all things new. And if that's what God says, if that's what Jesus like actually says, this is what I'm doing, is I'm making everything new, uh, then having a fresh start or having a new start, or like we say here, a time to restart, is just a part of who we are. And it's something that we do uh, sometimes on a yearly basis, like you've got, this is the beginning of a new year, and so you're forming some habits and some Uh, small steps that will result in large growth at the beginning of the year. But it's also like, for some of us, a day-to-day thing, or for some of us, a moment-to-moment thing. Uh, Can you do this for the next 10 minutes, you know, and live life 10 minutes at a time? Uh, In that, whatever we're talking about, and this is the last day of this three-week series that we've done, um, we're talking about the calling of Old Testament prophets. And what that means, just in everyday language, is there's In the Old Testament, which is the first part of your Bible, if you have an old book Bible uh, and don't use your app, it's the list of all those books and uh, there's prophets in there. And there's older prophets who are more like uh, leaders, like Moses and Joshua, and then there's, uh, uh, well, the theologians call them the latter prophets. And the latter prophets are all those names that you can't say and you would probably fail on a trivia test in this, like right before Jesus arrives on the scene in your Bible. And the three, excuse me, the three that were the most um, long-winded uh, were Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And today we're going to talk about Ezekiel. And he is easily my favorite. Uh, Ezekiel is a prophet who lived, um, just if you're into history, it was around, his ministry happened around 590 to 570 B.C., uh, which was a time when he lived, he was a Jewish person living in the southern uh, part of the Jewish kingdom, and he was, Ezekiel himself was exiled uh, by the Babylonians who came in and they took over the country and made everybody move to Babylon so that they can be productive as a labor force over there, and they brought the smart, uh, the good-looking, the handsome, the skilled, all those people over to Babylon to work for them, left a small remnant uh, of people in Israel. But he ministered, Ezekiel ministered to exiled Hebrew people. Uh, And it's kind of an important thing to just conceptually have as we walk through what we're going to talk about today, that the Hebrew people saw themselves as being insiders. Like they were, God had a special plan and he had chosen the Hebrew people to do this special plan or to work through for this special plan. And so they were the insiders and everyone else was the outsiders. And so there was a very clear distinction on who God liked and who God frankly, didn't prefer, according to their own uh, view of life and their own view of what holiness was. And so they were exiled, but they still held this kind of, we're the special people. Like, we're better than you because God chose us and didn't choose you. Yet, 
they were exiled as God's physical, like reality, judgment on their rebellion against God. So they kind of took God for granted, said, yeah, God is there. Yeah, we're the special people. Yeah, we're the chosen people. But then they ignored the things that God taught, the ways that God wanted them to live. Uh, They ignored the prophets and the priests who were speaking to them on God's behalf and just kind of went their own way and lived their own way. And the result was that these insiders had to live in a very outside place. And so they had these this like kind of hardness to their heart, where they, they had disobeyed God, they had rebelled against God, and yet when they are exiled, instead of it softening their hearts, it only hardened their resolve against God. Like God made us these promises, we didn't keep up our end, but God didn't keep up his end. Uh, and that kind of, instead of breaking them down, it only hardened them against God. Now, the first few chapters of Ezekiel, this is where it's kind of fun, are kind of like the original Air Jordans of the Bible. They were banned. Uh, People were not into, like, uh, Old Testament rabbis wouldn't let people read the first three chapters of Ezekiel. If you've heard at all of, like, uh, uh, if you're a fan of Madonna and you've heard... (laughs) I know, like, sometimes I give really good cultural references, sometimes not, but... uh, if you're a fan of Madonna and you've heard of like uh, Jewish mysticism or mystic spirituality in the Jewish faith, most of it gets its base in these first three chapters of Ezekiel. And so the first three chapters of Ezekiel wouldn't be allowed to be read by young or insecure or non-mature believers or followers of God. If you were a child or a student and you were in a, like a synagogue or whatever, they wouldn't give you these chapters to read, and they would encourage you to kind of skip over this. The reason being, the first three chapters, in, uh, kind of in, they list out two radical encounters that Ezekiel has with God. And we're not going to read through all three of them, but the first chapter alone, if you read it, it is terrifying. And, these, and mm, they're not angelic. Heavenly creatures... They're not angels, they're just strange creatures that live in the heavenly realms uh, that are terrifying. Uh, The first chapter of it, when you read it, if you're Ezekiel and, and, you know, you think I'm going to get a view of heaven, you get those views of heaven when you're on vacation, like in the tropics, right? You're like, this is what heaven is like. No, heaven is terrifying, right? Like you go in and there's things there that you have never experienced. uh, And God actually, like, appears to Ezekiel twice. Uh, Most prophets would get an appearance from God like once, like, hey, I'm calling you, go do this. Ezekiel gets two, uh, partly because Ezekiel uh, carries a bit of the rebellion in in himself. He doesn't always react to God in the nicest way. He was kind of upset and went and sulked for a while, but then he came around. Uh, Some of us have the same story. (laughs) But God appears to Ezekiel in such a powerful and overwhelming way that is actually, like, Ezekiel was almost kept out of the Bible by Old Testament rabbis, by uh, ancient teachers, because it was such a, seen not as untrue, but as so dangerous for a regular person to read. Because if you have this kind of encounter with God, who knows what will happen? Uh, just before, because we're going to read chapter 2, it'll be on the screen, but the last verse of um, chapter 1, uh, it says this, like the, like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, 
so was the radiance around God. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So it wasn't an appearance of God, but it was the appearance of the glory surrounding God. And when Ezekiel saw it, when I saw it, Ezekiel's writing, I fell face down and I heard the voice of one speaking. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen something so beautiful that you've fallen face down in fear, right? Uh, probably not. It'd be a good, like, opening line, young men, if you want to meet a girl, just walk up and fall down face first in front of her. It'll probably work great for you. But, uh, and then say, like Ezekiel, I am struck by your beauty. And that's a great way to go to the dance alone. But, <laughs> but there, uh, this context, this chapter 2 starts with Ezekiel on his face, being overwhelmed by the glory of God and by the presence of God and just this expression of uh, just what surrounds God being so, uh, frankly, terrifying in its holiness that he actually like falls forward in kind of a prostrate worship of, uh, of what is around God uh, and a, an appropriate terror as far as what is around God. Um, so I want to read a little bit of this. It'll be on the screen. And we're going to read a bit of chapter 2 and a bit of chapter 3. And then I think it matters uh, to the way we live. So he, and the he in, that, in this sentence is God, he said to me, son of man. And let me stop there for a second. In the like original languages, the son of man, it's a, it's a human being, Ben Adam, a human being. Uh, so it's like, he said to me, human being, stand up. The, a lot of NIV Bibles, New International Version, translate it like Son of Man because there's a, a reflection of what Jesus calls himself in the New Testament in the uh, story of Ezekiel. So uh, if that matters to you. He said to me, Son of Man, stand up on your feet and I will speak to you. Stand up on your feet and I will speak to you. And as he spoke, the Spirit came into me and raised me to my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. So now not only, just to stop there for a second, not only has Ezekiel encountered the overwhelming presence of God and fallen on his face, the Spirit of God has filled him and somehow levitated him up to his feet. So as if you're not scared enough already, there's the glory of God. Now the glory of God said, stand up, which the answer is always like, no thank you. And then the Spirit of God fills Ezekiel in such a way that, whoop, there you go, right? And Ezekiel now is not just terrified of the Spirit of God in front of him, he's now terrified because it just stood him up. There's a filling of, the Holy, of, of Ezekiel with the Holy Spirit that happens in a particular way that's unique in the Old Testament. But after the life and the death and the resurrection and in Acts 2, the coming of the Holy Spirit in a powerful way in the new believers, everyone who puts their full faith and trust in Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit, which means in the presence of God, the overwhelming presence of God, you are able to stand. There's a complete change that has happened, whereas if you are filled with the Spirit of God and you are in the presence of God, because of God's spirit in you, you don't have to react to God in terror and fear. This is, I think, like the first calling 
in this, uh, like the, the first calling to us in this scripture that we're going to read. We're only in verse 2. Uh, but this is the first message that if you are fully surrendered to God, then you are able to fully interact with God. And if you feel like your interaction with God isn't full, the problem may not be that God isn't speaking to you or whatever. It might be your level of surrender to God. Your willingness to fall on your face before God and recognize His greatness in contrast to um, your complete opposite of greatness. The smallness, uh, the limitedness, the finiteness of our own selves. When you're actually able to lose yourself to God because of having a true vision of Him and allow yourself a physical reaction to God, which... God actually raises you up and brings you face-to-face. God prefers to have a face-to-face relationship with you rather than a relationship where you're on your face and he's standing there. And he does that now that we live post-Jesus, uh, well, post-Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, we are able to, every single follower of Jesus, live in a face-to-face relationship with God. Now, this is... Um, radically significant because you uh, okay I'm not going to tell you why you have to come back in two weeks because it's in the sermon in two weeks uh, <laughs> it really is and that's a, a cheap ad but there you go um, verse 3 he says Ezekiel is now standing up he said son of man I am sending you to the Israelites the insiders to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me They and their ancestors have been in revolt against me to this very day. The people to whom I am sending you are obstinate and stubborn. And say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. And whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are a rebellious people, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, you, human being, do not be afraid of them or their words. Do not be afraid, though briars and thorns are all around you and you live among scorpions. Do not be afraid of what they say or terrified by them, though they are a rebellious people. You must speak my words to them, whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are rebellious. Ezekiel is called to the people that God has already called. Like Ezekiel is called to the insiders. He's not called to people who are outside of the faith. He's not called to people who are away from what it is to be a people of God. But he's called to the insiders. Because the insiders have become so rebellious that the man who's called to be the prophet to tell them what God says, God has to tell him repeatedly, don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of them. Because they are rebellious. Because they will not listen to what you are going to say to them. This is, if the first calling is complete abandon so you can have a relationship with God because anything short of complete abandon of your own self and your own pretense hampers your relationship with God. The second calling is to a holy boldness to the people around you, specifically the insiders. Now, a holy boldness is different than being a holy jerk. (laughs) 
I think we can all think of examples of people who are a holy jerk, right? If you follow me on Facebook, I had a new friend hit me up on the messenger a few weeks ago telling me because I'm not preaching to from the King James that I'm going to hell and so are you. So I was like, we've got to have coffee. Anyone bold enough to send me that message has got to be my friend. And you can look at my Facebook. I have several messages back and forth, and I actually know who he is now. Uh, it's kind of hilarious. But anyways, so I'm going to continue to pursue that relationship. <laughs> we disagree severely, but if you're bold enough to tell me I'm going to hell, then we've got to be friends, right? Like, I'm not, we're not going to be like, we're not going to see the world the same way, but you're my kind of guy. So we had this guy, and, and he decided that it was appropriate to send a message to a complete stranger to tell them they were going to hell because they weren't using the King James Version. Because Jesus, as we all know, spoke in 15th, 16th century English. <laughs> the <laughs> That's not true, all right? <laughs> if you're here today and you're wanting to talk to me after the service about this, this, is, this next part's not going to go well for you. But... There is what I call a holy jerkness where you, a person is bold, but not in a redemptive way. Like they're bold in a condemning way. And I hope you can see the difference there. That there is a way to be bold with someone that tells them the result of your boldness is their like, preview of hell. And then there's a different kind of boldness that gives someone a preview of heaven. And a holy boldness gives someone a preview of heaven. A holy boldness sees, though a person is stubborn and rebellious, that God still wants to speak life to them. A holy boldness is able to see the image of God in a person who is hiding it to the best of their possible ability. Like their, uh, their choices, their values, are doing as much as they can to mask the image of God's, like God's creative, we've made, all humans are made in the image of God, and they're doing their best to mask that. And a holy boldness finds God in someone's life, even though it's very difficult to find. A holy boldness is bold about redemptive life. Whereas a kind of a, a boldness that's jerk, that's you're finding death, even though God is still working for life. So this second calling, I think, for all believers, if you're filled with the Holy Spirit and you stand before God, is to have a holy boldness in the places that you're sent, specifically among the insiders. So, so specifically, among the Christians that you know. This isn't a call, necessarily, to people who are very, very far away from Ezekiel. This is a call to the people who are around Ezekiel, which gets even more clear in chapter 3. Let me read this to you. We're going to start in verse 4 of chapter 3. He said to me then, or he then said to me, Son of man, go now to the people of Israel and speak my words to them. You are not being sent to a people of obscure speech and strange language, but to the people of Israel. Not to many peoples of obscure speech and strange language, whose words you cannot understand. Surely if I had sent you to them, they would have listened to you. <laughs> so Ezekiel is being sent to the people who he knows their culture, he knows their language, he's being sent to his own people, to people, and, and only to his own people. 
He's not being sent to people. Like, God is clear. Don't go speak to people with obscure language and obscure cultures that you don't understand. And he's saying, if you had gone to those people, they would have listened to you. But I want to send you to people who aren't going to listen to you. But I'm sending you to people who you know, who you know how to speak to, who you know how they think, you know what their life experience is like. So Ezekiel is a missionary called by God to his own people, to his own family, which I think is a calling that many people today have. For a long time, the church has enjoyed, in the Western culture, in American culture, the church has enjoyed, enjoyed what I call like a chaplain role. When things go, are going wrong or you're having a struggle in life, you go to the chaplain, right? And he helps you maybe understand your life, helps you find some redemption and, and feel a little bit better about what's going on and get through the things that you're getting through. And so the church has had that kind of a role. But increasingly in our culture, that isn't the case anymore. When people want spiritual help, they don't think, I'm going to go to a church. The church is seen as a place that doesn't give spiritual help. The church is, uh, has many other descriptive words that are in our general culture used for the church. What that means is Christians need to be trained in the same way that missionaries have been trained to go to the people around you because their experience of God or their knowledge of God is going to be uh, what like people are calling it a post-Christian culture or a post-Christian context where they're, uh, like the number of people who have no idea what Easter is about besides eggs and bunnies, which I don't know why those two things go together, but besides people whose experience of Easter doesn't include any knowledge of the events of the crucifixion and the resurrection, that the percentage of people is rising in our culture. And in emerging generations, the numbers are even higher than our generations. Your kids and your kids' friends will have less of a Christian cultural experience, uh, and generationally, that's growing exponentially. I'm using big words. What that means is Christians now, instead of just saying, love God, love people, need to be trained in ways to actually interact with the culture around them in order to bring the gospel to the people around them. I went to uh, like a, a Bible college or a Christian college down south, and they actually have degrees. People go to school for years to learn how to be a missionary to people in foreign lands. They learn, uh, not only learn foreign languages, but they learn how to learn foreign languages they learn how to take oral languages and create written word for them so they can translate the scripture for them. They learn how to uh, investigate and be aware of a culture so that you don't commit horrible cultural faux pas, right? Like there's, there's a training that goes on. And I have friends with real life degrees, uh, friends who I think are, I love them. They're super adventurous. Friends who are going to uh, people who have never heard of Jesus, never heard of the Bible, flying to the other side of the world, and they're doing this. I'm saying you can do this on your street. But you don't have the advantage of a four-year degree. What you do have the advantage of is a lifetime of training in the language and the culture of the people that are like you. So that the people that you're around, there becomes a holiness of all learning 
because all your learning is useful for God to create gospel opportunities in your life. So that and this, is, this is going to create holiness, I think, in your parenting. As you're training your kids to walk and to talk, to think, to be able to uh, be clear about what they believe and to be knowledgeable about, about the Scripture, you're training them as a missionary in your own town or in the town they live in. As they learn certain skills, uh, or as they join bands and singing groups and technical clubs and even sports teams, what they are doing is gaining entrance to cultures and ways of talking and ways of seeing the world where they're able to share the gospel there in a way that you and I would not be able to. So that all of your life, all of your training is actually missionary training that God can use to advance the gospel. That God can use to reach the people who are around you. Like if you're like me and God isn't sending you to a strange faraway place or a strange language and strange customs. God sent me to you from Canada and you're not that strange. The whole, like, are you a duck or a beaver? That's a strange question to ask someone who's been here for two weeks. That happened to me. But are you a duck or a beaver? And I'm like, well, you're a strange person. But there is, there is something to be said to your being sent to the culture around you. Your experience of the world around you should be one of being sent by God, to the people in your world. Because you have been skilled and gifted and trained and been given relationships by God in order to put you in a place so that God can use you in that place to reach the people he loves who are also in that place. And the people that he loves is where that insider and outsider language comes in. If you believe that God loves the insiders, and doesn't love the outsiders, that's a perversion of scripture, and, and el that eliminates any missionary impulse that you have. But if you understand that God loves all people, then your movement, your gospel movement to the people out on the outsides of what you would call what it is to be a Christian, those people are to be reached by you. So your salvation changes from, I'm saved because God prefers me, I'm saved because I'm special, to I'm saved because God loves the people around me and wants to use me to reach those people around me. So it changes from, God prefers me, to the blessing is I'm being used by God. Because as soon as you say God prefers me, it means he doesn't prefer someone else. Which is, imagine hearing that. And we don't necessarily say that. We more live it out and it's kind of caught, not just taught. There aren't very many Christians who are going around and the ones who are are on the news because they're jerks. But there aren't very many Christians going around saying, well, God likes me, he doesn't like you. Sorry about that. The reality is that God loves all people and he is using the people that he wants to use so that all people can be reached 
for the gospel. God has no desire to send anyone to an eternal torment that the Bible calls hell. He has no desire for that. It's a reality because loving God requires the ability to choose to love or to not. If we, if we had no choice to not love God, then there is no real love there. You understand that. But to start to say that God prefers us and he doesn't prefer you takes away the ability to love God and I think in turn takes away God's love for us. Which taking away God's love for us might be the most offensive theology that you can produce. That God doesn't love us. This is verse 7. But the people of Israel are not willing to listen to you because they are not willing to listen to me. For all the Israelites are hardened and obstinate. But I will make you as unyielding and as hardened as they are. I will make your forehead like the hardest stone. This is a euphemism, so you know. Harder than flint. Uh, don't be afraid of them or terrified by them, though they are a rebellious people. And he said to me, Son of man, listen carefully and take heart all the words I speak to you. Go now to your people in exile and speak to them and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, whether they listen or they fail to listen. Ezekiel is told, God's going to make his forehead hard. He's going to give him this holy boldness where he will not give up because nobody's going to listen to you. This is, again, a call from God that you don't want. God calls you to reach the people where you are and then says, but they are rebellious and they are obstinate and their hearts are hard. And there's a good chance that no one will ever respond to the love of God because of your expressing it to them. But you will be bold, and you will be long-lasting, and, and you will be unchanging, and you will be hard-headed against them, and you will not give up because they will know that God loves them. They will know that a prophet, a messenger of God, has been among them. You will enter into difficulty and God will strengthen you for the difficulty. And you will not quit doing what you're doing. There becomes a measurement of success for Ezekiel that is not measured by how many people are going to his church or how many people have become Christians because he witnessed to them or how things are going ministry-wise, because it is going terrible. And his ministry is a couple of decades where the people listening to him will not respond to him. And I used to think that was terrible. I used to think, what a terrible thing to say. Like Ezekiel would be depressed. I actually had a conversation about this with my pastor when I lived in Georgia, when I was going to college. I read this, and I was like, how depressing. And he was like, well, maybe that saved him from depression. Because he would think, like, Ezekiel might think, I'm terrible at this. Nobody's responding to my sermons. I preach, and they are all obstinate. They are all, they are all hard-hearted. And there's kind of a, a mercy by God in giving that. And the mercy by God, I think, to you and to us, we are, uh, I'm out of time, but I'm going to keep going. 
we live in a part of the United States that is not Christian. If you're into Christian music or Christian speakers or Christian conferences, none of them come above Sacramento. Because past Sacramento is just pagans, right? That's a, I say that word funny. Uh, but it's just like there, the percentage of people who choose none for their religion in the Pacific Northwest is twice the national average. It really is. Like if you, uh, I'm, I help people plant churches and part of our denomination, I help people plant churches. And we often, it's hard to find people that want to plant churches up here because there's no Christians. To which I'm like, you're an idiot, right? Like, but people want to plant churches where there's lots of uh, pre-converted customers because that's a lot easier. So they go down south. It's stupid to me. You have been put in a place where the, a level of rebellion against the Christians is at a, a, a high that the Western culture has never seen. And God decided to save you and move you and have you have a job and a family and relationships here. You and I have been sent to the most godless part of America. There's, like, if you look at 18 to 35-year-olds in the city of Portland, uh, the percentage of them who go to church is like 2 or 4 percent. Meaning 90, 98, 96 percent of the young rising generation in Portland has no use for the most important thing in the world to your heart. And God's decided you're the caliber of Christian that he wants to put here because you're hard-headed enough and you have enough holy boldness to be able to live for Jesus in a place where it's just not happening. Where the Christian resources who depend on Christians buying tickets so that they can fund these things. Like I don't, I'm not mad at the bands that don't come above Sacramento. It just doesn't pay to come up here. Because the Christians who are up here uh, are very small number. And so it's very small concerts that they would even put on. But uh, anyways, that's economics for you and that's not interesting. But when, uh, no offense, economists in the room. But when, they're, when we think about where we live. You can start to get depressed and be like, my town, my region, the people I'm around just aren't going to turn to Jesus. And I think the reverse might actually be encouraging to you when you think that God has decided that you are the people that he wants to send to the Pacific Northwest. You. So you'll see pictures and posters of missionaries going to Umbubatu and Papua New Guinea and going into the jungle and trying to reach people who have never heard of God, That's, they might as well walk down your street. It's the same thing with better plumbing. It's the, it's, <laughs> but the, the level of faithfulness in your region is like statistically very close to completely unreached people groups. And you might hear, and this is secular sociology, you might hear of a big church here or a church that's growing here. The vast majority of that growth, the secular sociologists call it, it's the circulation of the saints. Where, oh, this is the hot church, and now all these people are leaving and going to that hot church, and now they're leaving and going to that hot church. Or they, and they tend to cycle into the largest churches because they have groups that meet their needs, and it's understandable. And that's not good or bad. That's just a false thinking 
that we're reaching people. Because reaching people in the Pacific Northwest is harder than anywhere else in this country. And so you have been called and you have been sent by God in the same way that Ezekiel has been sent. And you've been filled with the Spirit and stood up in front of God and God said, you are the one that I'm using in your area. I'm not sending you any missionaries. One joker from Canada is all you're getting. (laughs) And if you knew that was your only missionary, you would try to get a different one. But, But you are sent to your work to your family, to your school, to your friends, to your street, to your social groups, to the parents on your kids' sports teams or activity groups. You are the one that God has chosen. You are the one that God has literally sent to the people that he loves. If that doesn't fill you with a sense of not just responsibility, but a sense of how much God believes in you, then I don't know what will. The challenge here is this is where we're together, and then when we leave here in just a few minutes, you are actually being sent into the world. And you might not have the opportunity, it might actually be illegal for you to talk about your faith in the places that you go to, in your workplaces, in the structures that you work in. But God has sent you there because he's going to give you the skills to be able to work in a place like that. He's sent you there because he is going to use you to reach the people that he loves. And you are completely inadequate for the job but he's going to make you so hard-headed that it's going to just, it's, those people will have no doubt that God loves them. We're going to stand and I'm going to pray for us. And I'm actually going to pray like a commissioning prayer. You can go ahead and stand up. I'm not just going to pray, thank you, Jesus, rah, rah, rah. But I'm going to pray a prayer for you as you go this week, that you will go with a sense of being sent, and that you will go with a sense of God hardening your forehead in the same way he hardened Ezekiel's forehead, to a people who are rebellious and obstinate against the God who genuinely loves them. Let's pray. Our Lord, as a people, as a church, as people who are filled with the Spirit of God, if we put our full faith and trust in you, the Scripture teaches, then the full measure of the boldness and holiness of God exists inside of us. We admit our terrible inadequacy. The correct place for us in front of you is face down in terror because of your holiness. And yet, God, you have chosen us for this time and this place. You have given purpose to our life because of how much you love us and how much you love the people around us. I would bet everyone in this room can identify by name people who they would love to see come to know you in a saving way. People who they would love to see turn their life around in such a way that they're able to follow you, Jesus. And so we pray that you would move in us in such a way that would glorify you to the point that people know that God is among them. That we are literally embodying We are being, like the scripture teaches, the hands and the feet of Jesus to the world around us. 
not just uh, going places and being sent places, but we're bearing the wounds of Christ because we take upon ourselves the shortcomings of the world around us, the sin of the world around us, and we're seeking the redemption of the world around us. God, thank you for putting us in a place that has so many that don't know you. Thanks for making us missionaries to a culture that describes itself as being post-Christian. We're not just like starting at zero. A lot of people, we're starting at a negative number when we talk about Jesus and talk about God's love. And so we pray that you would move in us and through us in such a way that it can only be a move of God. That we would receive no glory for it, but only be explainable by God's decision and God's will to glorify himself in our city, in our jobs, in our families, in the people that we love because you love them. We pray this with expectation of your spirit 